Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Exocast, a centurion of Exocast episodes. And we're very happy to be here and for everyone who's listened along for the last 100 episodes. Um, the 100th episode is going to be a news episode. And I'm sure it'll be a, an interesting one. Um, but as always, this is the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. On this 100th episode, as always, I'm, I'm Andrew Rushby, and I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. We're going to cover a few of the month's most interesting papers. We've each focused on a single interesting development that caught our eye, I think. Hannah will be talking about things from uh, TRAPPIST-1, as will I, in fact, about detecting the feasibility of some biosignatures. And Hugh will then take us in a slightly different direction with epic planetary collisions that resulted in a massive debris cloud. So I think maybe it makes sense for this 100th episode for Hannah to start us off on the news discussion. Yeah, great. I'm going to be talking about a few papers, but all on the same topic and all with the same pretty much answer from what I can gather. Um, and this is all about TRAPPIST-1 papers from JWST observations that have been done. And for those that don't know, I'll give you a brief summary of TRAPPIST-1. So TRAPPIST-1 or simply, I'd probably say TRAPPIST because there are no other trappists it's just one of them it was a survey though right it was a survey but they didn't find anything else so and the first one down. was the best one so it worked out well it's still going it's it's still still going but i'm just going to call it trappist because putting the one after it's just too difficult for me so. apparently um <laughs> it is it is a small cold red star some 40 light years away or so but orbiting that small cold red star are seven small rocky planets now, the whole system could happily fit within the orbit of Mercury in our solar system, and it actually looks more like Jupiter and its moons because the the star itself is just a bit bigger than Jupiter, but is much, much more massive, so it's burning hydrogen at its core, so it is ignited as a star and is self-luminous. It is the smallest a star can be before it is not a star. So it is incredibly cold. In fact, we've seen some planets that are hotter than the TRAPPIST-1 star. But that means that these rocky planets, which sit very, very close to it, are actually much colder than you would you would think they would be. And even though they're all really, really close and are likely tidally locked with a permanent day side and a permanent night side, there are three of these worlds, D, E, and F, that are likely in the liquid water zone, so between zero and 100 degrees Celsius. So it's a very complex system that people are very, very interested in, simply because we have one star, we have seven planets. They're all about the same size. They're all about the same radius and mass of the Earth. So we know that they're rocky. But because it's all around one star, we can use that to really understand the distance impact from a star has on its planet. So we've got these beautiful little test tubes of worlds that we can look at. And JWC has been diving into that in... The first year it had scheduled observations for every single one of the seven planets to be observed in various different ways. And over the last year alone, we have started seeing kind of the flood of papers that are coming out about this TRAPPIST system. And whenever I get asked questions about JWST from the public or in various different medias, the questions always come to this system and what are we seeing and what are we learning? So I thought I'd give us a quick summary of what has come out so far about TRAPPIST planets and 
try to put a nice spin on it for the future. Spoilers. Because the first observations that we, we got coming out were looking at B. This is the closest planet to the star. So this is the hottest and closest planet. And these observations were done by looking at the thermal reflected heat from that planet or the thermal emission from that planet in the mid-infrared. And they took one single photometric point, so one single image in one single colour, to look at this planet. And what they found was that the measurement they made was inconsistent with that planet having an atmosphere. So from the first observations with JWST, we do not think that TRAPPIST-1b, the closest in planet, has an atmosphere. Now, the next measurements that came out in the summer this year were looking at the second planet, TRAPPIST-1c, which is slightly colder than TRAPPIST-1b because it's slightly further out from the star. Now, they did a very, very similar measurement of the planet itself and again resulted in this null result. They were unable to definitively say that this planet had an atmosphere and that it in fact looked more like it was bare rock than it would be if it had an atmosphere around it. But both of these studies, even though the, the measurements suggest that these are both bare rocks, there's no atmosphere, have spawned different looks and dives into the chemistry or the atmosphere required to both match that measurement, but also to have an atmosphere itself. So the question is always, fundamentally, the first thing that JWST is doing for the TRAPPIST planets is, do these planets have an atmosphere at all? That is the fundamental question. And it's a yes, no question that has come out as always, with a maybe. Because the measurements say essentially no. That would be our first look at those measurements if we took it based on just the simplest physics that we can put together. The answer would be no for B and C. But people have been studying into these and trying to come up with different mechanisms that would allow them to have these atmospheres. And there does seem to be a number of different ways in which these planets could still have an atmosphere that we have been unable to detect. So I think the answer is still a little bit of a maybe for B and C. And that's simply because we've only got one data point. What they did is they took one single photometric measurement in one wavelength to try and understand whether or not these planets had carbon dioxide in their atmosphere, the thing that we expect to kind of be the most prevalent and able to detect. And they were unable to do so. So there's still a whole host of other potential atmospheres that could exist. And this is where spectroscopy comes in. So I want to talk about the latest paper that has come out. And this is again looking at TRAPPIST-1b, the closest in planet in the system. And this time they used the nearest SOS instrument. So this is the optical to near-infrared instrument on JWST. It goes from about 0.6 microns. So that's just beyond the red end of what our eyes can pick up all the way out to about three microns. And that spectra allows them to break down that light and get many different points along that way to see if they're able to measure changes in the radius of the planet as a function of that wavelength. And that would say, be indicative of an atmosphere around a planet. Now, one of the things that is kind of important with these observations is that they saw two things. One, they saw wavelength dependent features in both of the observations. So they took multiple observations of TRAPPIST-1b, and in both of them, they see changes in the amount of light blocked out by the planet as it transits the star as a function of wavelength. Only problem, both those observations look different from each other. They're not consistent with each other. It's the same planet passing in front of the same star with the same instrument mode broken up into the same wavelengths 
And while there are changes, they don't look like each other. And that actually kind of tells you that it might not be the atmosphere of the planet that's being measured. Because if there's an atmosphere that is stable, it should be repeatable. We should do the same thing again and again and again. And we've proved that before with looking at these hot Jupiters. We see the same thing again and again and again. Now, after a little digging, the teams actually found an explanation for it that matches a lot of the other observations that are coming in from TRAPPIST, and that is the star itself. Now, I've told you that it's a small, cold, red star. Now, these stars are often quite active, and we know TRAPPIST is an active star. This means it's got spots on its surface. It's probably got flares and faculae and hot spots and cold regions unevenly distributed all over its surface. So it's an angry star, it's not happy, it doesn't like its planets. But the thing is, we don't ever see in any of these observations a planet passing in front of a spot on the star. So the spots on the star are either very, very small or very, very large and outside of the cord the, that is being crossed by these planets. But when you take those spectra from near, nearest, the team actually fit a series of different models to them and they showed that what you were seeing is likely two different faces of the star itself during those observations. The star had rotated since the observation of the previous transit of the planet, and you were seeing that changing star instead of that changing planet. So the star itself was the thing that was being measured and not the planet's atmosphere. So they weren't actually able to rule out lots and lots of different types of atmospheres that had come up for B, but they were able to say that this planet definitely doesn't have an envelope of hydrogen gas around it. The planet does not have a stable hydrogen primordial atmosphere. So that star is really the problem. And that came up again in another paper which came out around the same time, which was looking at all of these TRAPPIST observations of the star and studying the flares that are being seen. So this paper is looking at specifically the star. It kind of ignores the planets. It takes the planets out of the data and it's looking at their bright flare events that happen during the observations. And they measured four discrete and very distinct events on the star itself where it's ejecting huge amounts of radiation. So the star is active. We know it is. We know that it's that contamination from the flares is really going to be important for our measurements of the planets. But essentially, the story so far with the TRAPPIST-1 planets for B and C, the two closest one-ins, and we're still going to wait on hearing about the rest of the planets, especially those ones in that liquid water zone. But the star's going to be a problem the entire time because the star is there in every single one of our observations and the star is being grouchy in every single one of the observations. It's the stellar activity which is the problem in, in identifying an atmosphere, but it's also the stellar activity is probably the reason there isn't an atmosphere in the first place, right? Because all of those flares are going to be blowing off uh, every single time the atmospheric contents into space, right? That's exactly right. But the, the thing with the TRAPPIST system is because you've got those seven planets and they're at all uh, various distances from that star, they will experience that radiation, that flare event in different ways. And is the question that we still have is B too close, therefore it can't maintain that and the flares are destroying it or the radiation or, or whatever is destroying that atmosphere. But is planet EFG, are they far enough away from the star that they're protected from it in some way? Yeah. So we also know that these planets, they, they orbit so rapidly that often multiple planets are orbiting at the same time. 
So often we see two planets passing in front of this star simultaneously could be be actually physically protecting the other planets from these flares by being a blocker for any of that radiation as well is a question. So there's a number of different things that people are trying to think about is how does the interaction of the entire system then reflect what we can see? And I think we'll start learning more as they come out. I mean, there's so many more observations that are being analysed right now. There's so many different programmes looking at all seven of these planets. We've only heard from two of them. And that I just talked about was seven papers. So there's so much more to come. And I don't think we'll hear the end of Trappist for a long time. But I, I'm not entirely certain that the, the picture isn't just that little bit on the, the grim side. Okay, well, sticking with Trappist and following on very nicely from Hannah's kind of discovery or at least characterization papers, I've got one about the Trappist-1 system that's more about looking at the feasibility of detecting maybe some biosignatures from those planets that Hannah was just mentioning, Trappist. Well, in this case, 1D and 1E is what we're going to focus on. So we've often discussed the possibility or the, or the feasibility of JWST being able to perform these detailed atmospheric characterizations of terrestrial planets, specifically about the challenges usually facing that instrument when we're looking at these small worlds, these small orbital separations and less atmosphere through which to transmit those photons and and maybe not having an atmosphere at all. And Hannah's already introduced the challenges with the TRAPPIST-1 system, or TRAPPIST as it's probably, I will also probably end up calling it. But a, re- a recent uh, paper entitled The Feasibility of Detecting Biosignatures in the TRAPPIST-1 Planetary System with JWST by Vicky Meadows, uh, Andrew Lukowski, and Jacob Lustig-Jäger uh, appeared in the Planetary Science Journal recently and investigates the, the de- detectability of those biosignature gases. So recall a biosignature, an object, a, a pattern, a signal, a gas that has a uniquely biological logical origin and we're looking for those in the atmospheres of these of these planets using JWST or hoping to in the future so is it possible is it feasible based on what Hannah's just said maybe the star is going to cause some problems we're not going to focus on that too much here although um, it's an extensive paper I'd recommend checking it out if you're into this this kind of work Um, and I think they have considered some some flaring uh, in there but that comes down to more you know trying to get a, a good spectra for the star which is itself its own its own challenge so, as I've already mentioned, TRAPPIST-1 probably needs little introduction. Uh, it's an experimental sandbox for comparative planetology. I like to think about it, you know, these seven uh, Earth-sized planets all squished into this really compact orbit. And interest to astrobiologists in particular, uh, because of their interesting potential for climatological characterization and potential habitability, all within this, well, three of them perhaps within this traditional liquid water zone, as Hannah has already mentioned. So here we're looking for the transmission spectra of the, st- of the planets uh, for a variety of different gases. So we generated some temperature pressure profiles for the uh, VPL climate model, which is a general purpose 1D radiative convective climate model comprising a radio transfer module, atmospheric chemistry module, some updated gas absorption dynamics, aerosol optical properties, and then of course the time series spectroscopy simulator Pandexo from Natasha Batalia, former Exocast guest, to determine the detectability of some interesting gases using the instruments or the instrument simulator in this case near spec uh, near cam near and miri so the full the full gamut of instruments 
We're looking for methane, carbon dioxide, oxygen, ozone, and also methyl chloride, which is an interesting proxy gas for oxygenic photosynthesis, which on Earth comes mainly from tropical vegetation, at least, CAM, CAM and C4 plants, and as well as methyl, uh, methyl mercaptan, so that's CH3SH, a product of the sulfogenic biosphere, which might also be something you might want to look at as an, um, an analog of maybe an Archean-type environment. But the issue with those last two gases, because the line lists for those molecules are unavailable, we need a little bit more laboratory characterization of those. The de detectability estimates are made using room temperature cross-sections, which might make things a little bit different in the, real, in the real world when we're looking at the pressure and temperature dependence of those particular gases. So that said, the authors, I can give a general, uh, a general summary, is that the methane and the, the carbon dioxide disequilibrium pair are the most most likely or the most favorable uh, detection um, kind of disequilibrium pair. The uh, methyl chloride signature would be good, but we probably need at least 100 times the Earth's current flux of, of methyl chloride or about 20 times the flux expected from tropical vegetation in order to make that detection. And we don't actually even know all of the Earth's sources of, of methyl chloride. So uh, we think it's probably from mainly tropical coastal environments, but still need to figure that one out. Similarly, methyl uh, mercaptan appears to be the most promising sulfogenic molecular biosignature in the wavelength range that JWST is going to be using and could potentially be detected in 50 transits with near spec, but we'd need about a 30 times the current day flux for, for methyl mercaptan to make that detection. And I think with the model that they use by comparison, and water vapor would be detectable within 35 to 60 transits in that same range. So about the same level of spectroscopic difficulty, I guess. But overall, they found that it might take about 10 transits for JWST to detect the CH4 and CO2 disequilibrium pair in the atmosphere of TRAPPIST-1e, a sign of maybe an Archean Earth-like environment with a nice, busy, methanogenic biosphere, uh, which would support an earlier authors who came to a similar conclusion. So this is probably due to the the higher CO2 abundance that's needed to keep the planets warm in, the, in this case, the increased lifetime photochemically of methane, especially for planets orbiting M-dwarf stars, and the strength of the spectral features in particularly the near-spec wavelength range kind of adds all of those, adds to the strength of this potential detection. So this is, this is promising because methanogenesis is an ancient metabolism, probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest, on the Earth, and may persist for a considerable fraction of the planet's habitable lifetime. It would give us a good window, hopefully. If we can catch, catch a planet methanogizing right now, that would be great, and you know, maybe further increase the probability of detection. So I think if you couple it with the, with the relatively small number of, uh, of transits I've required, it, it, it might... It, it sounds pretty promising from the biosignature detection uh, side, at least. They also looked at a bunch of photochemically, quote-unquote, self-consistent inhabited atmospheres. That includes something like the pre-industrial Earth, the Archean Earth, the modern Earth-type environments, um, and found them all to actually be uh, weakly detectable with near-spec prism in two or three transits. Much more confident, five-sigma detections with six to nine transits, but the prospect of identifying the presence of a one-bar potentially, quote-unquote, inhabited atmosphere on TRAPPIST-1 E is potentially in the capability of JWST, which is quite exciting, I think. So 
there are some problems with the oxygen and uh, and methane, methane and and uh, O4 detections, any of those photochemical products of oxygen, because of the planet's small size and, and its large scale height, making that detection quite tricky. But CO2, CH4, and maybe even this the slightly more obscure methyl group compounds that we don't think about might be a good option for for detecting a biosignature on TRAPPIST-1E. So maybe future work that follows on from the initial initial survey of TRAPPIST-1. Um, I don't know what you think, Hannah, as a, as a resident expert. I mean, I'm coming at this from a very optimistic habitability side of things, but from a detection characterization side, what do you think? Uh, do you agree? I agree that there's potential to okay. detect something, but I don't agree with the, the, the what I would call very optimistic limits. And that's simply because of what we know about this star and how star, it's been affecting yeah. our observations. And, and these are ignoring that kind of characterization of the star itself. Now, there are very smart people out there who are designing programs to try and essentially learn about the star as much as humanly possible so that we can remove it, remove that uncertainty from our data and be left with the planet's information on its own without that star interfering. But I don't think it's a short timeline. Uh, and I I don't think it's an easy one to do. And then I think there always comes in the question is, is it worth it? And that's something that I think no one of us is able to answer. I would like to think given that there's there's some quantification of the possibility of detecting something like this in a relatively small number of, of transits. I would hope that maybe someone might think, someone smarter than I might think it was worth it to, to have a go at doing this. Yeah, and it's dependent on what that relatively small number is because it, it gets mm. larger and larger every time we add this problem, this question of what, what other factors might be affecting it. And the question of, is this is this a typical system? Is this the best system? Tess is discovering things all the time. Is there a better system out there to start kind of asking this question where the star isn't so much of a critical aspect for what's going on in these planets? We're relatively untouched by our star. I say relatively because we, we do, of course, interact with, with our star. But that's not the case for these planets around these small stars. So are we, are we at the point of actually being able to answer the question that is egotistically at the centre of all of this, is about our own planet. Exocast. Okay, maybe now for something completely different. Shall we go over to Hugh for something outside of the TRAPPIST-1 system? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to hear about this one. Yeah, it's very, very much outside of, of what we've been talking about so far. So, I will... Not tell you the title yet, even though you, I think we mentioned it at the start, because this is quite an interesting one of these astronomical mysteries, and I, and I and I really like when this happens, when we, as astronomers, find something weird and have to figure out exactly what's going on. And in this case, it's it's Matthew Kenworthy who's who's been exploring this weird system, and actually I've, I've worked with him on the past on other similar weird systems. Because what happened here is that a sun-like star, relatively young but you know a few hundred million years old was observed by the Assassin survey, which is actually a, a survey looking for supernovae, not, not looking at stars at all, but stars are in, in the field of view, so it, it is able to build up a light curve, so the, the brightness of the stars over time. And during, I think, 2019, the star had this huge event where it almost disappeared, where it was blocked by material for more than a year, and 
the full eclipse lasted almost a thousand days. So it kind of began gently decreasing in flux. And then during the deepest phase, there are these huge variations in flux on a day, a night, night to night basis, where um, the star was clearly being covered by something. And then the next night, it was maybe more visible. But with a total of 90% of the, of the starlight being blocked at, at some, some of these nights. Um, but there's clearly some structure in what is exactly blocking this star based on the fact that there are these huge variations. And so this was the this was found by astronomers. And the question really was, what the hell is going on? Because, <laughs> because this is not something we expect stars to do, is to periodically disappear. But there are cases where this has happened before, and usually the culprit, for example, uh, we talked a little bit a while ago about Boyajan's star, which is a star in Kepler, which had these huge chaotic kind of eclipses happening. The culprit is almost always dust. <laughs> so somewhere in that system there is dust blocking the star, and the dust is a cloud of... of dust is, is, is moving across into our line of sight of the star. Uh, and in fact, you can see this because there was observations in multiple wavelengths through AVSO, so this uh, actually amateurs taking observations of the star, and through LCO, which is the Los Cumbres Observatory. And so different wavelengths scatter different amounts of light depending on the dust size. And so in this case, as expected for dust, the kind of blue light was more scattered, so there's less, more of blue light is missing effectively than the red light, which which passes through the dust. It's kind of what you see in a dusty day in the atmosphere where the sunset is particularly orange, uh, that blue light is being scattered away. So so there's definitely dust in this system, and the length of the eclipse and the fact that that actually there was another another ten years of data before the eclipse means that there's not something close to the star. It must be quite far away from the star that we haven't seen this repeating. But the, an interesting second observation was that about a thousand days before, so so you know more than three years before the eclipse started, the infrared satellite Wise, which is a NASA satellite looking at the whole sky again, surveying every star in the sky basically in the infrared, saw that the flux from the star in the infrared jumped. So something like a thousand Kelvin object that just appeared next to the star. Hmm. And then 1,000 days later, we see this this dusty eclipse happening. And so what Matt Kenworthy and the team basically looked at why, what could possibly be happening here? Are these two things related? And actually, one thing you see with the infrared excess is that it decreases over time. So clearly there was some event that happened four or five years ago, and then this burst of energy that was created is slowly decaying. And the logical thing, the conclusion that they came to, was that this was a collision of planets. So two planets in that system happened to collide together, and they did so on a quite a, a, a large orbit, so quite far from the star. And that collision created a huge cloud of debris, which happened to then orbit in front of our line of sight, cross the star, and almost block the star, um, which is a, a quite a remarkable conclusion. And I think it, it kind of makes sense, right? The, the, these two remarkable things, the fact that it brightened in infrared and then we saw this huge amount of dust must be related, I think. And mm. so it definitely makes sense. And, and they were even able to go a little bit deeper into what sort of planets might be that are causing the um, both the infrared and the, the dip. So the infrared emission gives us both the uh, temperature and the amount of luminosity. So they worked out that there was about a 0.1 AU squared surface area of dust, which must be emitting um, this energy. And, and that that must still be 
in the hill sphere. So basically in the gravitationally bound regime around what's what remains of the two planets. And so that gave some sort of gravitational constraint on, on the size of the bodies. It also looks like by doing some simulations, you can't have two rocky bodies that slam together because they should create a much higher temperature. Molten silicate is much, much hotter. And so if there was nothing else involved, we should expect a much hotter cloud than a thousand Kelvin. So uh, this actually points to there being significant volatiles. So probably water that is quenching that temperature from 2,500 Kelvin down to 1,000 Kelvin. And so the obvious thing to point to, which which kind of fits with both, is that the, there's maybe a mini Neptune or um, you know that sort of regime planet involved here, which collided and which is then able to, to correspond to the, the temperature that we see. And finally, they're able to, t- to talk about the orbit of this, this um, object, of these planets. Uh, because of the variation in the light during the eclipse, they can actually say something about how fast the, the dust is moving. And it turns out it's moving relatively slowly, so slower than, than the orbital velocity of the Earth, for example. Uh, so it must be further out from the star. And also the fact that there was this huge gap between when the, the collision happened and when we saw the dusty debris start to eclipse the star uh, must mean that the orbit is longer than a few years. So they basically pin it down to between 2 and, and 10 AU from the star this collision occurred. It's a super interesting idea. I think it's probably, it, I don't think it's the first time we've witnessed a collision because there was formal thought, this, this planet that we thought was a planet, which turned out to be potentially the collision between two protoplanetary bodies, which happened to mimic the hot temperature of a young planet. Uh, but it's certainly the first time that, that they've been able to, or astronomers have been able to actually link both the burst in energy and this dusty debris. And potentially that means that we might be able to even um, look into what, what the planets were made of through spectroscopy of the debris next time it comes around, whenever that will be. Because this is expected to last for another few centuries. This cloud of dust which was created is, is not going to disappear very quickly. It will slowly cool off, it will slowly um, clump together again, but but yeah, this, this dust cloud will be around the next time the what was left of these planets um, orbits its star. So certainly they'll be uh, ripe for observation whenever that happens, although that might be decades away, given the orbits. Uh, but yeah, I think it's super interesting paper and, and, and a super interesting result. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I've heard about these kind of dimming events and we hear about them on various stars. It's not the only star where you've seen these kind of strange, yeah. essentially dust clouds around, but the fact that they've been able to tie that to that brightening event, which suggests that, that something dramatic happened in the system or nearby, allows them to kind of piece this picture together, I guess. Yeah, because I think with, with something like Boyajan star, um, mm-hmm. there is no comparative like infrared thing, but that's still actually one of the theories, right, is that there was a collision and that the collisions produced dust and the dust we're still seeing, but the collision was a long time ago. But in this case, we really know that, okay, we see the dust and we see the infrared uh, brightness peak. So they're linked. And of course, there's, you know, parallels with planet formation theory, or at least the history of our solar system, right? We thought maybe a a large planetary scale collision between, you know, the early Earth and a, and a Mars-sized object caused the moon. So we're seeing some analog of this happening, yeah. you know, con- almost concurrently elsewhere. And potentially for Uranus as well to, to tilt its rings, there's a theorized collision out there as well yeah very elegant nice nice good 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 choice here (laughs) 
Great. Well, don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we ask the question, do all planets orbit stars? And we disagree. <laughs> uh, let us know what you think about the show through Twitter and Mastodon and Blue Sky or on our website, ex- exocast.org, where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash Exocast. And a huge thank you to all of our past donors there. Uh, We can't keep the show running without you. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers and more at exocast.threadless.com. The podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Chaos Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK, Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.